Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, wishing I was at Stat's headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robin, sheltering in place in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, March 26th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, our colleague Helen Branswell will join us for a high-level update on the coronavirus pandemic, where things stand and what we've learned. Helen will stick around to help us discuss the longtime federal health official who has become a household name during this crisis. That's Anthony Fauci. Then we'll be joined by Carolyn McGill, the CEO of a health tech company called Ation. She'll tell us how real-world evidence could potentially be leveraged in the fight against COVID-19. And on a completely different note, we'll talk to Dr. Andrea Pfeiffer, CEO of AC Immune, about her company's treatment for Alzheimer's disease and a fascinating study in Colombia. Before we get to this week's podcast stuff, Damien, Adam, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. You'll get profiles of the personalities and power brokers that are shaping the industry, and we explain healthcare policy emerging from DC and report on Silicon Valley's efforts to use tech to disrupt healthcare. I'd listen to Damien, he speaks the truth. Stat Plus is all of that. You can subscribe to Stat Plus at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, we're offering 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year by using the code POD. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Let's start with some numbers that paint a picture, albeit an incomplete one, of the coronavirus pandemic. These figures were current as of the time we recorded this podcast on Thursday morning, but it's absolutely certain that they'll be higher by the time you listen to this episode. So in spite of an unprecedented lockdown all over the globe, there were more than 487,000 confirmed coronavirus cases worldwide. More than 69,000 of those are in the U.S., and more than 1,000 people in the U.S. have died from the virus. So, as Rebecca mentioned, as we know well, the actual number of cases, which would include infected people who haven't been tested or people who haven't gotten their test results back, is surely much, much higher. Yeah, and it's an absolutely devastating situation. Uh, You know, that's particularly true in New York City. In the span of eight hours on Wednesday, that's between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m., 81 people in the city died from COVID-19. 81 people. We're joined now by Helen Branswell, Stats lead reporter on the pandemic. Helen, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks for inviting me. So Helen, we asked you this question a week ago, but so much has changed. It seems worth asking you again now. What are a few of the most important things we've learned or or gotten stronger evidence to confirm in the past week about the virus and, and the disease it causes? I guess I would say that the United States is on the trajectory that people had feared it was on, but hoped it might not be. You know, with the lack of testing that's gone on and two months effectively lag in getting testing up to speed in the country, it was really unclear how much of the virus was here and where it was spreading. But now as testing is ramping up and as people are starting Starting to get sick, we're starting to see that this is a very bad situation. There's a dastardly thing about this virus. You know, it takes a while for you to get enough cases to really see that it's there. So I remember in late January, I think it was, maybe early February, talking to all sorts of people saying, you know, why aren't we seeing outside of China what we're seeing inside of China? And they actually mostly said, we don't really know. 
the fact was it was just a matter of time. And now, you know, that window has closed and we are in the point where the cases are really mounting in a very um, significant way and we're starting to see places light up. So, Helen, I wonder your thoughts on kind of where the United States stands now relative to some of the other countries that have been, you know, really hit hard by COVID-19. You know, Italy, uh, now Spain seems to be overwhelmed. South Korea, you know, seems to be having the situation under control. Where is the United States now? Well, sadly, we're not on the trajectory of South Korea. Um, They, as you mentioned, have managed to keep uh, spread there to pretty low numbers. The U.S. is more on the trajectory of a Spain or an Italy. But, you know, it's such a big country. Everywhere isn't experiencing this to the same degree as uh, Seattle and New York and the northeastern United States at this point. Florida, obviously, is in the thick of it, too. But there could be places where this is still not such a big deal. And they may be thinking to themselves, you know, why are people, you know, so fussed about this, but it's coming. And because of the size of the country and the demographics, some places are much more crowded than others. You're going to see sort of rolling epidemics across the United States over a period of probably months. So we're starting to hear calls to reopen the US economy. President Trump wants things back to quote, normal by Easter, which is April 12th. Helen, what are you hearing from public health and epidemiology experts about the potential impact of doing that so soon? You know, the whole idea of getting people to uh, put physical distance between themselves is to flatten the curve, to slow the spread of the virus so that hospitals don't get overwhelmed. You know, if you're trying to flatten the curve, 15 days is not going to do it. It's going to take longer than that to really slow the spread of this thing. Otherwise, You know, if you get people out and about and mixing, transmission will whoosh back up to the levels that you had before you asked everybody to take to their homes. I think it is fair to say that regardless of what the administration advocates, the truth is that people are not going to be flying all over the place anytime soon. People are not going to be taking cruises anytime soon. Older people are going to stay in their homes because they know they're at severe risk. We're going to be talking in future about this time as sort of a BCAC moment, you know, before coronavirus and after coronavirus. And we're only at the very beginning of the after coronavirus phase, but there's no way that life here can safely resume to BC ways, you know, by Easter. Let's switch to one of the more eyebrow-raising developments uh, that emerged this week. That is the fate of Dr. Anthony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert who has become the most trusted and followed scientist on the pandemic, uh, at least here in the United States. Right. And that's because Fauci, who has been at the National Institutes of Health for more than 40 years, speaks very clearly and effectively about matters of public health. However, that often means contradicting President Trump, who hasn't always been a reliable source of facts on the coronavirus, and it means doing it in public. You really have to hear Fauci to understand what we're talking about. So let's play this clip of him subtly pushing back against Trump's declaration that the country will be open for business by Easter. That's really very flexible. We, we just had a conversation with the president in, in the Oval Office talking about, you know, you can look at a date, but you've got to be very flexible. And on a, on a literally day by day and week by week basis, 
you need to evaluate. So statements like that have put Fauci, who is a resolutely nonpartisan scientist, into a partisan narrative. To the sort of hashtag resistance types on Twitter, Fauci's factual statements read as a rebuke of Trump, and he seems to have succeeded the likes of Robert Mueller and Michael Avenatti as a sort of hero of the moment to people like that. You know, meanwhile, over in the QAnon corners of the internet, Fauci is a deep state plant. He's working to spoil Trump's reelection by instilling a panic over coronavirus. You know, and that message you know, cleaned up to some extent is starting to be echoed by some mainstream Trump supporters. But who is Tony Fauci, really? Helen, you've been covering Fauci for more than a decade. Having known Fauci for so long, Helen, were you surprised by his sudden celebrity? No, and in fact, it's not really sudden celebrity. I mean, there may be times when he is not as uh, front and center as he is now, but whenever there's a health emergency in the United States, be that a flu pandemic or the anthrax attacks of 2001, you know, Tony Fauci has been a face that Americans would have seen and heard from repeatedly over the years. So kind of on that note, what was his reputation like before the current moment in which he's become so talked about? Well, he's a force of nature. <laughs> he is uh, 79 years old, looks at least a decade younger than that. He has sort of indefatigable energy levels. He, I think, works every day. I'm not sure. But the current circumstances accepted, if you send Tony Fauci an email asking for an interview, you better be ready to do the interview within, you know, five minutes because you might get the call that quickly. He seems to have more energy and work on a different plane in terms of the amount of things he can squeeze into a day. So speaking of interviews, uh, the other day, the magazine Science published the transcript of a really extraordinary phone interview with Fauci. In that interview, Fauci voiced a level of candor that you rarely hear about how he's navigating some of the false things that President Trump is saying at White House briefings. Asked about one of those falsehoods, Fauci said, quote, I know, but what do you want me to do? I mean, seriously, John, let's get real. What do you want me to do? Helen, what did you think when you read that interview? Well, I was very jealous I hadn't written it. But um, so that was written by John Cohen, who's a friend of mine. He covered AIDS extensively in the early days. And as a consequence, has known Fauci since the early days of AIDS. And so he and John have known each other for a very long time. And I guess I'm not surprised he had a candid conversation with him. I am a bit surprised he didn't put some parameters on it in terms of what was on and off the record. But it was a great read. So kind of on that topic, in parallel with Fauci's rise in the public consciousness, we've seen reports in the New York Times and elsewhere that there's a growing rift between him and the president. So we're not going to ask you to speculate about what's going on in the White House. But if Fauci were to eventually lose his job, how would that resonate in the public health world amid this crisis? That would be taken very, very badly. And frankly, it's a bit hard to imagine him being cut loose at this particular moment. I guess I shouldn't rule that out at this point, but, you know, he is extraordinarily well regarded. If he were to be fired at this point, you know, scientists across the country would be deeply, deeply concerned. But I also think politicians would be as well. There was an interesting New York Times story by Maggie Haberman, who pointed out how unhappy the president was with some of Dr. Fauci's corrections of him. But she also went on to note that the president has been known 
to hold off firing somebody when he still needed them. And I would suspect that he may be making that calculus now. Helen, thanks for your time uh, and your perspective. And as always, keep up the great reporting. Thanks, guys. Great to hear your voices. Next up, we're going to talk about real-world evidence and why it's generating a stir in the world of drug development. So real-world evidence is one of those buzzwords that gets bandied about quite a bit. It's fueled by data that gets collected outside of the controlled setting of a clinical trial, and the goal is to try to assess the safety and, and efficacy of a medication. And so that could be data from records of insurance payouts or from electronic health record systems. It could even be collected from a patient registry or a wearable device or social media. Joining us today to talk about real-world evidence is Carolyn McGill. She is CEO of Ation. That is a New York City-based health tech company that specializes in real-world evidence. It sells software to biopharma companies and other customers to help analyze those data. Carolyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. So, Carolyn, maybe to start, you can explain to us the difference between real-world evidence and real-world data. Oh, I am so glad that you asked that question because I feel like we interchange those terms and, and don't necessarily articulate what we're trying to convey. Real-world data refers to the data that we collect relative to our everyday lives and how we experience the healthcare system which means what dosing we're taking of a given medication. Maybe we skip taking a medication from time to time. And then what happens to us afterwards? Do we end up in the hospital, as an example? Real-world evidence refers to the insights that we derive from those data. And when we talk about evidence, we're thinking about the hurdles that we must meet, especially from a regulatory perspective, to then make a decision about safety and effectiveness related to a medication, the hurdles associated are things like the transparency around how we derived those conclusions. What methodology did we use? Are the studies replicable? Which is a huge challenge that we have in the industry with respect to other tools and platforms that are used. These are the kinds of things that we take into account when we consider whether the insights we've derived count as evidence. So for a long time, there's been skepticism, I think, among drug industry researchers who would say that real-world data just isn't good enough, that it's not reliable or, or powerful or predictive enough to replace the careful study that happens in an old-fashioned clinical trial. What do you say when you hear that critique? So the first thing I would say is that using real-world data gives us an opportunity to look at populations who are underrepresented in clinical trials or settings that aren't represented in clinical trials. They also give us an opportunity to get a better sense of what happens when somebody skips a dose or doesn't follow the protocols the way that they are more inclined to do in a clinical trial, which is a controlled setting. The other area where we have seen real-world data be very helpful is in contextualizing a study. And then to the extent that we have oncology drugs in particular or medications for rare disease being tested, where maybe it's unconscionable to have a control group, as an example, or the population sizes simply aren't large enough to do a control group, then we can do what we call external control arms 
using data in lieu of a control arm in the context of a normal study to supplement then what's happening in the study itself. So, Carolyn, what do you see as the goal with uh, real-world evidence? You know, there's obviously a lot of debate about when and where it ought to be used. Uh, do you want to see these data replacing traditional control arms in, in drug trials, or do you see the appropriate role as more supplementary? We see the role of real-world evidence as supplementing clinical trials. We don't believe that it makes sense to replace clinical trials with data studies. That said, the work that we're doing with the FDA is an example on the Duplicate Initiative with other regulators around the world helps to underscore how critical it is to test how and when it's appropriate to use real-world evidence to drive decisions about labels, about safety, about potentially representing populations who are underrepresented in clinical trials. And I recall in one of your previous podcasts, I think it might have been Damien said, he's a protagonist of reality, which is a phrase that I think I'm going to repeat in other contexts. Um, That's exactly what we expect to achieve with integrating real world evidence in our understanding of how medications work for different patient populations. We want to reflect what's actually happening in the world and all the messiness and chaos associated with that. So we'll use real-world evidence to supplement what's happening in those more controlled settings. Carolyn, we love guests who are also diehard listeners of the podcast. <laughs> so thank you for that. So let's shift gears a little bit to you know what is obviously the biggest story in the world right now. You know, obviously that's the coronavirus pandemic. So we wonder, you know, do you see a role for real world evidence in the fight against the coronavirus? You know, maybe in the race to repurpose or develop drugs and vaccines or in some other context? So one of the first applications, I think, of real world evidence related to what we're experiencing globally right now related to COVID-19 is to consider the ways in which real world data can be used to supplement some of what we have going on with trials right now In addition to that, we know that we can use real-world data to create a picture of potential complications for COVID-19 patients. We have guidance out there around whether or not to take ibuprofen as an example. These guidances haven't been tested. So we can use real-world data to give us a sense of the impact that taking them might have on populations who are presenting with COVID-19 symptoms. And we can also use real-world data to help us get a better picture of safety and effectiveness of potential antivirals, the IL-6s, which are addressing symptoms, some of the medications that will, and therapies that will come to the market to treat. So on the flip side, are there any applications of of real-world data that you think would be inappropriate in this context and maybe should be off limits in trying to address a public health crisis of this magnitude? That's a great question. We oftentimes think about real-world data in the context of whether it is fit for purpose. So the kinds of examples where real-world evidence maybe is not appropriate would relate to whether we were collecting data either through claims or through an electronic health record that were relevant for what we're trying to test. So I gave the ibuprofen example as one, do we capture in data how and when people are taking ibuprofen? That's an over-the-counter medication. We do it so often for a headache or another purpose. 
that the data isn't collected systematically by our physician or certainly by a claim, which means that we can't measure dosage, we can't measure utilization. So that might be an example where we don't have fit-for-purpose data for answering that question. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we collaborate with our clients on so that as we're structuring studies on the platform, we ensure we're using appropriate data sources. And then the other component, of course, is applying appropriate methodology to measure whether, in fact, something is working in a credible way so that we can consider our insights to be evidence. Carolyn, thanks for coming on The Read Out Loud. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. past year, much of the conversation about potential treatments for Alzheimer's disease has focused on Biogen's fairly controversial drug aducanumab. But there's another therapy called cronezumab that's moving through late-stage development in a fascinating clinical trial overseas. Joining us today is Dr. Andrea Pfeiffer. She is CEO of AC Immune. Uh, that's the Swiss drug company that is invented and developing cronezumab. Andrea, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So to start out, Andrea, can you explain to us the design of the cronezumab trial in Colombia? Yeah, with pleasure. I think uh, the Colombian study, by the way, is the first um, Alzheimer's prevention study. You call it also API. And here, the, the interesting part is that you're actually including in the trial a population which, um, because it's genetic, will get Alzheimer's disease on average age of 44 years, so highly exposed. This, in fact, allows us to um, test the uh, question, can actually primary or secondary prevention take place in Alzheimer's? Primary means the prevention of the blacks. Secondary means the prevention of the symptoms. So very clear, very clean, homogeneous population with a, a mutation which is called E280A, and it leads to this early onset of Alzheimer's, and uh, we are including about 252 people in Colombia, and about 82 are actually on Krenuzumab. And Andrea, what's the timeline for this clinical trial? Like, when did you start it, and when would you expect to see, I don't know if it's preliminary results or final results from the study? The study was started going back to uh, 2014, so it's a long study. Obviously, the study is fully recruited, and we want to treat the, uh, the people. It's not patients, because they are cognitive cognitively normal for about five years with a drug. And the study will read out in Q1 2022. So cronezumab is similar to Biogen's aducanumab in that both are directed against toxic plaques in the brain called amyloid. But of course, not all amyloid treatments are the same. What are some of the key differences between those two medicines? So the main difference between aducanumab and cronezumab is actually that uh, aducanumab targets um, plaques and the oligomeric A-beta, the oligomeric A-beta being potentially the most toxic component, this kinetomab preferentially actually targets the um, oligomeric A-beta. We have shown, in fact, in our phase two study that we can reduce these oligos, which are highly neurotoxic um, in an animal and potentially in a human environment. So... Um, 
the other difference is what I call the backbone, so which uh, immunoglobulin actually is used. Kenotzumab um, for immunologists on the call is an IG4 antibody and uh, aducanumab is an IG1 an antibody. And um, this is one of the reasons, not the only one, uh, why we see definitely differences in safety and tolerability of the two drugs. With uh, aducanumab still shows a relatively high uh, REIA, um, so it's a side effect which is edema for brain, whereas kunutsumab actually did not show any edema. So for the purpose, meaning the prevention of the disease, uh, kunutsumab has uh, many, uh, I would say, characteristics which you really want for a preventive drug. You want to have it safe, very high doses, um, and obviously you want to have it targeting the most uh, cytotoxic or most relevant species. So AC Immune's work in Alzheimer's disease goes beyond amyloid. Can you tell us a little bit more about the rest of the company's pipeline and how that's coming along? So AC Immune is probably um, the company with the broadest um, neuroscience pipeline. The pipeline is derived of our two platforms, the superantigen platform and the morphomer platform. And uh, these in two platforms are in fact um, used to generate molecules, vaccines, antibodies and small molecules, which are uh, confirmation specific. In fact, the only difference between an Alzheimer patient and a normal person is that these proteins, a beta, tau, alpha-synuclein, TTP43, there are quite a few of them, uh, change their shape, change their conformation, and if they do that, they become pathological. So uh, the closer, the more specific the, your molecules are for this conformationally changed, misshaped protein, the more efficacious and the more safe is in fact the drug. So our platforms really allow to make um, these molecules very specific uh, for this misshaped protein. So zooming out from Alzheimer's disease specifically, in recent years, we've seen a lot of major multinational drug companies kind of retreat from neuroscience research. AC Immune obviously has continued to invest in it. What gives you confidence in the progress of the field as a whole? Yes, in, effectively, I consider this a pity that some of the drug companies decided to um, move out. But I'm not surprised because uh, it is a very difficult field. Um, already I made one point before, because we are missing tools. We are missing the diagnostic tools to look in the brain and select the patients. So I think in order to make really a difference, you have to have a pretty big toolbox available in order to make sure that you basically de-risk your clinical development, meaning diagnostic. So um, I think it's uh, that's why I believe from a scientific experience point of view, I mean, we have really a large experience, but also from the business and clinical development and simply from the toolbox, meaning diagnostics, we are really determined to make um, a difference in this field. And difference means for me, precision medicine, application of precision medicine, to treat the patient for what they actually have. Andrea, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. 
Tell us how you're coping with the pandemic and your thoughts on how it's affecting biotech. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.